Hi, I'm Alex Zekernik. I'm the president and CEO of Nova Royalty. We're listed on the TSX Venture Exchange under the ticker, ticker Nova. Uh, we are a royalty company focused on copper and nickel, which we really see as the most fundamental commodities in the entire energy transition. And we really wanted to find a way for people to invest in really the key building blocks of the entire movement, which is really the big copper and nickel mines through the best way possible, which, which is a royalty, which is which gives you access to the revenue line and free of cost or any other CapEx uh, uh, obligations. And some would say almost inflation-proof. Uh, Alex, good to see you again. Uh, we saw you back in October 2020, um, just when you kicked off, actually. Um, you've been busy? Yeah, you can say that. <laughs> yeah, I know you have. I've read about it. Um, no, um, I think given it was such a long time ago, I'm going to treat this as like a first time we've, we've met or spoken, okay? So um, royalties, focused on copper and nickel, get it. But when you just remind us what you set out to do, what, was the, what, what did you set out to do back in October 2020? Has that evolved or changed any since, since I saw you? Well, look, we started the company in the summer of 2018. And uh, you know, we, we spent two years private really making sure that by the time we went public, the company was really ready to grow. And what, what we saw when, when we began was really just a generational opportunity. I mean, the world was changing in a very fundamental way. And so if we were before in the age of oil and coal, what we saw was really the emergence of the copper age. And we wanted to start really start a company that would allow people to participate in that in the most advantageous way, which is a royalty. You haven't really had a copper royalty company in mining before and because copper was never considered so strategic. Um, and so as a first mover, what we did literally, we put together a great team, uh, really all around the world. I mean, right now the NOAA team, when you include everyone who's involved, is over 20 people, which makes it in, in all the key camps. And we mapped out all the regions, every mine that was of relevance to us. And we found the royalty holders who, uh, from whom we wanted to acquire these royalties. Now, if you want to buy a royalty in a top-notch copper mine like Takataka or Westwall or Nova Union or any other things we have in the portfolio, um, you're not going to get them from the companies themselves because these large companies like, you know, First Quantum or TAC or uh, Glencore, they don't sell direct royalties on their price deposits and their price commodities. There's actually never been a deal like that done that I know of. That I know of. The only time that the royalty will be generated is when those companies buy the deposit from the original prospector who found the mine and the royalty is generated and given to the seller as their upside participation. Now, because it takes 30 to 40 years often for a mine to go from exploration to production, people who receive these royalties, they get tired of waiting. And where, where NOAA comes in is we come in usually in that final stretch before production, say, last five, seven years or so, when there's clearly a visible resource, there's a viable production plan, there's a viable owner or a clear transition to a viable owner in the very near future. And we buy that royalty for with a reasonable price between cash and shares. And we really provide a solution for them. And, you know, us being now a diversified company listed in the exchange, we provide investors something unique to invest in. And and it's been... Okay, well, like, 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 I think before we kind of run away and tell me the whole story, I just, I just want to sort of dig into a, a, a few areas there that, that you've mentioned, right? So we, we understand the model. I understand what you're trying to do mm-hmm. and the advantages. Um, let's go back to the team side of things. Okay, so when, when you kicked off, obviously you... I'm trying to work out, you know, have you evolved since since the early days? You know, have you learned a thing or two along the way? So, you know, again, when when you kicked off, what was the experience in terms of transacting on royalties? You know, and, and you know, how many royalties had the team done at that point? Well, when we started the company, um, so Brett Heath, who, who, who is the chairman, myself, put it together. Brett obviously did a great job putting together Metala uh, in the gold silver space, 
So I think, you know, we covered off all the key components you needed uh, off the bat. So the relative experience we have with Brett, our initial chairman was Parvi Frasangi, who was the former chief operating officer of Valley Inco, ran the world's second largest nickel business. And if you look at the technical committee, you know, that we have, plus these people who are not even disclosed, um, we probably have as good a technical team between uh, engineers and geos uh, around the world as any. Well, um, well there's, two, there's two bits to that, aren't there? there there's the actual, you know, putting the royalty together or, or picking up the third-party royalty and, you know, an- analyzing it, having the technical team to experience um, Experience within his experience to actually work out what, whether it's good or not, whether it will get into production, whether the economics do actually mm-hmm. stack up, etc. So you, you talked about twenty people earlier. You know, how many of those are internal? How many external? How many full time? How many part time? It's actually interesting. So we've got right now three full time employees, um, and then everybody else who's involved with the company is you know, almost everyone's been there from the very beginning, and it's usually some mix of you know cash and shares, uh, really that kind of give people incentive and. There's a real skin in the game, um, and and that structure has worked really well. Um, you know, for for a while, I was the only full time employee, but we still had a very sizable team around the world that allow us to to function and get a lot of things done. Right. So you, you had consultants available to you as and when you needed them. So I think it's more than that. Reju- um, they're okay. not just consultants. Okay. I mean, I think the the key is if you just rely on consultants, people who have twenty other things happening, I think it's really tough. Uh, we had people that work with us, you know, kind of in a very intense way from the start. They just weren't full-time employees. Um, and that's, that's really what's allowed us to continue. What's the service? The difference? I'm, I'm struggling with the difference. What's the difference? Well, I mean, the, the way, the way I think of consultant is someone who you hire for a specific task. They do it and they kind of go away. I mean, we, we, we have people on an ongoing monthly basis, you know, who on a day, they regularly get. Correct. Plus, they get they they get regular options and and the like. So they've really been a part of the company from the very start. Okay, uh, fine. And, and in, that, that, in terms of the track record of these people, just give me an example of what you know why you would have hired them. Like, what what had they done in the past? You say, like, you know what, that's perfect. That's a perfect fit for us. Absolutely. Yeah. So I mean, look, it kind of part part of you was obviously our initial chairman, um, and then Darren Wagner, who is two time prospect of the year in Canada. One of the former senior geologists at Tech and founder of West Timmins and Balmoral and Platinum Group Metals. Uh, he is in our advisory committee. Frank Hanagarn, former chief operating officer of Core Mining. Uh, he's there as well. Uh, Christian Rios, uh, who is based in Lima, really one of the better, best geologists in South America. So I, I guess I could, I could keep on going down the list, but, um, it's a really strong group that we've had the privilege of from the start. Right. So that's on the technical side. And what, what about in terms of the actual the royalty, the, the paperwork? You know, how do you know? That you're not overpaying for something because royalties tend to be quite competitive. Although you are kind of niche, you, you focus on green metals like copper and, and nickel. You know, some of the PMs do have those things in their portfolios too. So you don't actually want to overpay. How, how do you make sure that is the case? Well, I think the first thing you think about before you even get to the economics is you need to buy tier one assets. When you look at the when you look at the royalty space. All the most successful deals have been done in tier one assets that keep on expanding. And so, you know, there's no such thing as buying a really good asset really cheap today based on current projections. I mean, I've never seen that. Uh, but when you look at all the outperformance that's been generated in this space by some great companies, um, you buy really good assets at reasonable prices today and you let them grow. Um, and that's what we've done. You know, so we've bought Takataka, we've bought Vizcachitas, we've bought Westwall and Nova Union and the like, and you buy tier one assets at reasonable prices. You're comfortable with your technical evaluation. You're comfortable that you've underwritten to a reasonable rate of return today. Um, you obviously got to go to legal paperwork to make sure that everything is, um, everything is proper and registered and the like and, and valid. 
Um, and if you have those pieces, you have a deal that makes sense. Um, and that's, that's what you try to do. But it, it does, it does ultimately come down to the, to the economics, obviously. So I, I guess I'm sort of in, intrigued about how you weigh that up. But what do you think? Because you've kind of first mover advantage, there isn't a lot of competition. You're not in some sort of bidding war like the, uh, the precious metal guys tend to have to take part in the banks to make them. And do you think you, you're picking up fair value as a result of that lack of competition at the moment? You know, listen, I, I don't know if necessarily you would differentiate between the precious and, and us from that perspective. Not everyone participates in the auction. Well, who, who, who are you pitching side. against then? Who, who do you pitch against when you uh, find The these? reality is, you know, kind of it's not even, look, every royalty we've bought, we're not the first royalty company to talk to them. Okay. And it's, and I mean, that is, I, I just don't think it's possible. I mean, the world is too small. But I think we're, but I think what you, what we do do is this is a space we focus on. This is all we think about. Whereas other people that may have talked to do a lot of other things. Um, and so we do kind of, we've done all the technical work up front. We know exactly what we want before it shows up. We don't need time to turn around and do diligence once we see something because so much has already been done. Um, and you're able to act quickly on things that you know are priority for you. I think that's the differentiator. Um, if you find yourself in a situation where it's an auction and it's coming out sort of, sort of clean corporate office and the like, I think you could potentially create value for yourself there. But it really, I think, is maybe like a one-off type transaction. Um, it's very difficult to do that consistently and actually generate value for your investors because obviously these things get built up pretty, pretty aggressively. I mean, I guess the other thing, I was just also thinking that there are very few tier one copper nickel projects in the world you know tier one mm-hmm. but well actually what do you mean by tier one let's, let's define that first tier one i mean something that a major company is either developing or will or, or will want to develop in the next five years how many of those are there right now there's not a lot i mean we, we, we from what we own and what we're trying to buy hopefully we'll get to critical mass of those um and i think that's a super attractive thing for investors to own uh because then it's something that can be impl- that there will be an asset that evolves for generations um, and I think that's a super unique kind of a level of exposure. Um, you know, when you look at, when you look at the copper space, you know, you'll be lucky to see one major copper mine come into production a year in the world. Um, there's just not a lot because the level of capex you need, you're talking every, every major copper mine, no matter what capex they put out, you're probably going to be close to five billion by the time you're done. It's just the nature. It's just the nature of the business. So even for the really big, serious companies, tech first quantum. Um, these are company making investments. I mean, so I was following first quantums up there in Takataka. So it looks like they're moving full speed ahead. Detailed engineering is being done. Permitting is, is very well advanced. They're highlighting production decision 2023, 24. But it's like constructing a new civilization over there. You know, it's, um, it's just a massive investment. It, it is. And I agree with you. Like copper typically, well, not always, but you know, typically oh, it requires a huge capex. Okay. But th- this is, and I want to move on to the portfolio now because this is a bit interesting because I think when we, when we spoke, you were proudly announcing to me the Janus Lake deal with which Rio Tinto were investing a little bit of money into trying to explore and work out. And I'm not sure that's going ahead now or not, but mm-hmm. your deal size then that you're happy to do versus your deal size now that you're indicating we need tier one only. Has that evolved in the last two years? I mean, it's, it's evolved, I think, in terms of what we can comfortably do. And so when we, when we went public, we were 20 million market cap. Um, and so I think, you know, obviously we, we knew what we wanted to buy over time, but there's only so much that you can digest at any given point. 
Um, as the company has grown, we've added to the portfolio. I think the assets have advanced, which is the most important thing. You know, when you buy something, you're judged on whether the assets are actually advancing toward viability uh, rather than just sitting there as, as, as potential hypotheticals. Um, investors have supported the company and it's easier for us to go and do, you know, larger deals. So for us to do a 20, 30 million trans- transaction today is a very viable situation. We don't have to think about too much. Okay. So maybe, maybe before, bef- before we get into the, the portfolio, then let, let maybe just talk about the money, right? So is there any revenue today? Yes. So we picked up our first cash flowing mine in Mexico, uh, in, um, in August of last year. Yeah. Called Aranza Zoo. And we, you know, we watched that for about 18 months and it's really one of the best mid-sized copper mines out there. So how much? And our, uh, we paid nine million dollars. Yeah, and, and uh, so the revenue—you know—we estimated the revenue about one and a half to two million dollars a year um, on that mine. Okay, and it looks like it's got a good amount of runway, you know, kind of ahead of it. So it's it's very encouraging. So one and a half—you haven't had a full year yet. Um, so will your your that one and a half million to two million would be this year, twenty twenty two? You suspect, or would that be a, a ramp up? No, I think I think for for, for twenty two, that's a reasonable number for sure. Okay, um, and and what would that? How long would that last? What's what's the Life of that. I think the the official uh, uh, the the official sort of resource reserve right now is about uh, of PNP and M and I is about ten, 10 years. Okay. Um, plus you've got another three years of inferred, uh, which we we wouldn't even count in our initial calculation, and they've been converting the inferred pretty aggressively. So if you look at our answer from the time that he opened the mine, the reserve the reserves and the resources are higher than they were in 2018 when the mine was reopened. Production is up. I think double at this point and costs are down every quarter. So um, what we saw when we bought it was something that can definitely go on for for decades, just given kind of what you've seen in terms of resources of replacement and the performance of the management team and really just working the ore body. Okay. So so just sticking on the money side of things. So you raised whatever it was, 13.6, nearly 14 million bucks back in August. And how much have you raised to date? We have done... Um, in terms of cash, I'll tell you. Um, so we've done two public financings. Um, I think total Canadian uh, total about twenty eight or so. Right. And then uh, BD Capital has has put in another. So in cash, and I'd say two eight. I think it'd be about forty five million or so. Something okay. Like that. Fine. And have you got any facilities in place, or what? And what do they look like? What are the terms? Yeah, BD, BD Capital um, has given us. Um, <clears throat> A convertible note facility. Okay. And they're, they're a major shareholder of the company. So it's, it's great to have that support. And so it's not your typical convertible note facility where, you know, you, you, you have a creditor first. Um, yeah. so, um, they own about 10% of the company and we have about 18 and a half million available on a convertible note facility as well. Okay. Fine. So, and, and so let's, so let's sort of move, I guess, to the, um, the portfolio. Well. Is a mixture of the portfolio and revenue flows. So if I if I look at your revenue profile, have you kind of given guidance to the market as what you think that could could look like? You've talked about one so far, one point five to two million mm-hmm. potentially ten year and maybe extended. But what what are the other near term revenues that you're expecting? Say within the next couple of years. Um, look, I mean, the way we saw it was, you know, if you want a near term producing copper mine means. If it's starting to get built today, it'll be producing by the late 2020s. Um, and so again, I mean, you could, you, you're investing in the sector with fundamentally different timelines. Okay. And so if you're buying, if you're buying the most advanced assets today, then you know, by 27, 28, 29, I think that's when it's reasonable to expect them to begin coming through. Right. Um, if you, so what we wanted to do, and that was really the, the opportunity that we saw that was just incredible when we started the company. So you wanted to go and buy those assets when you could. 
because I mean, again, they don't they don't hang around for too long once people's attention is really focused on. So how do how do you value these things yourself actually? Because it gives a clue as to how we should value them. Like because if they're going out the, the long term like this, you saw Sabanye uh, Stillwater pulling out of a one billion dollar uh, transaction in South America recently. You know, think things go wrong, right? Um, so how do you, how do you look at these when you're valuing? The, the royalties themselves and their likelihood of success or contribution towards, you know, revenue as you, you predict. I mean, you must discount, mm -hmm. I, I suspect. Of course. Yeah, look, I mean, every deal, we've, I mean, if you look at where we've bought, I think we bought about probably 0 0.3, 0 0.4 times net asset value, assuming 325 copper. So that's obviously a much more conservative metric than paying net asset value or a premium to net asset value, which you've seen a lot in other situations. So you, you absolutely want to give yourself a cushion on, on things of this nature. But, and again, I mean, where, <clears throat> where we think the really compelling opportunity is you're buying legitimate tier one assets that are really the future of the sector. So we really don't see the production risk as terribly high when you actually look at where these assets are situated. And so, and if you can buy them at very reasonable valuations, like we've done, we feel like it gives investors and, and diversify the portfolio as well. Cause I think that's also a critical part of it. You're really giving yourself the company and, and then obviously the associated investors just a great risk reward proposition throughout the years. Now, what we wanted to do as well is obviously fill in the near term, midterm cash flows of the company as well. Um, so we, we bought Aranza Zoo in August as, as the first step to that. Um, and we've got a lot more, uh, that we'd like to add through. Cause I mean, what you ultimately want to do is create sort of a nice consistent ladder of cash flows throughout right from the near term to the midterm and then obviously the big the big projects will kick in in the late 20s but long before then I think now that we have the base of the company set up you can add cash flow to it much, at much better terms and much more organically than you could in the beginning you know when when we when we did the answers it would cost us about what three percent of our shares outstanding uh to basically get the royalty that we liked a lot and also filled all majority of our GNA needs Okay, so, um, so, we, so let's, let's, let's look at that. Just again, I'm just trying to understand how you, how you're building this, how you're smoothing those curves, mm -hmm. um, as it were. So if you look at, you, you talked about obviously a, a, a longer uh, cash growth profile, uh, in there. Um, what, what does, what does that look like to you? You're talking obviously, you know, back, ending 2020s. Um, but you might be able to smooth some of those curves with some, like different types of acquisitions, you know, n not necessarily just in terms of near term, um, producers, but, you know, the types of developers, different scale, they're not the tier one guys. There are lots of well, you know, smaller is, copper companies, you know, that, that perhaps could fit that profile and do that job for you. So how are you looking at that, um, smoothing that cash growth profile? Absolutely. No, listen, I mean, I think what, you know, you, you, I think when you build this out, especially from scratch, you, know, you kind of have to define your stage as well. So that you, you, you do what can be done today. And then once you have a better base, you can do something else tomorrow. So the, the opportunity we saw in the beginning, which we saw as an absolute must have is you have these tier ones, tier one royalties available. It hasn't yet garnered full attention of everyone else. Buy as many quality ones as you can that you think will really be a part of this cycle. Um, and I think that's in and of itself is a super compelling opportunity. At the same time, you're building a company. So once you've done that and you've built a solid base of value, you want to go and look for smaller deposits that are also high quality that can give you some near-term, mid-term cash flow. So Aranzuzu is step one of that. There's other high-quality um, mid-sized copper mines out there, some public, some private, where that can work. Um, and and we're, we're very focused on those types of opportunities, for sure. But those, those, those are different conversations, aren't they? Because they may not have a, a, 
a royalty on them at the moment. So you'd need to talk about potentially origination or mm-hmm. maybe, maybe they do, in which case, you know, those, those are going to have a different cost profile for you. They're going to cost a little bit more, right? So, um, how many more, more of those sorts of nearer term revenue, uh, projects do you think you're going to be able to land in the next, say, couple of years? Cause obviously the end, end of 2020, end of, end of the 2020s is a long ways away, right? Well, like for, forecasting deals is tough business. You know, we've done, you know, we've done eight and 15 months, but I, I've, I've never forecasted anything that we, that we could possibly do because, uh, things change very quickly. Uh, but look, we see it. We see so you got one there in front of you. Tell me you've got one and that's in the bag. Is it? It's done. And so it's it's casual in cash and the like. And so, but you know, it took us 18 months of watching it, evaluating it and negotiating it to get it done. You know, so the good, the good things take time. Um, I mean, what, I mean, kind of what we do, Matt, is just, you know, we cover the whole sector, every, every copper mine and every place that's of interest to us. We track all the time, but there's, it has an existing reality or it doesn't have an existing reality. That's a, that's a separate conversation altogether. Um, and I think what we, in terms of what we see in front of us, in terms of where the assets are, where the sector is, we expect ourselves to transact more opportunities in the coming years to balance out the near-term, mid-term cash flow profile in a real way. Right. Um, and then just like you know, when we built the company, when we went public uh, of our assets right now, the top four or five weren't even in the company at the time they go public. I could never, I could never forecast you know anything like that, but we had confidence in our plan and. We've just been executing, so we're pretty excited about what, what's what's coming ahead here. Okay, so just again, just help me a second to try and work out some numbers of how many more of these projects. So, with, so with that one project, right? So yes. that is based on what reserves only, or resource, or you know, or do you um, do your cash flow forecast include expiration targets? I mean, what? what no. What's the, what's no, the profile no, no. look never, like? We never put exploration targets. We, the only thing we used in our, in our initial cash flow forecast was reserves and MNI resource, and merged and educated resources. Okay. So, so, so just to paint a picture of that profile, the, the, the economic contribution, the time frame, et cetera. So I, I'd like to say, okay, if you did two more of those, you're, you're kind of good. You're, you're, it, it, that would make sense. So, you know what you've got to go out, get after. I think that's very reasonable to expect at least, at, 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 at least two of those in the coming. In the coming couple of years, for sure. Okay, right. So the the perfect, right. The other thing you said in there was going to interest me is that the way that you go about looking at it, precious metal companies when they've got when they're small and they're just starting off, they, they're scrabbling around looking after the small stuff, and then they kind of work their way up the food chain. You've gone to the other end of the table and said, we want the tier one stuff first, and then we'll kind of backfill everything up mm-hmm. with these developers, etc. So that's different. Okay, that's different. Um, and you know, I think precious metal companies, you know. Well, quite a few struggled at the end of last year. Maybe there's two or three he 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 didn't as precious metals uh, prices. Uh, sorry, the precious metal prices stayed up, but the, the equities came off. So I think it, it's it's sort of um, it's it's kind of interesting to me the, the difference between you, you you and them. You pointed that out a, a couple of times. But coming back to your portfolio side, one of the other differences is you don't have a lot of royalties. It's a smaller portfolio size. So why, why is that? You don't need a lot of royalties. We do. Precious metal companies. Precious metal companies. They want loads of royalties because they all get the same (laughs) multiple, the good ones and the bad ones. So that's their game. So why don't you? Because the thing is, when you look at the royalty space, all of the return, all the outperformance has actually been generated by a very small number of assets. So when we started the company, we didn't want to be a small company. We saw an opportunity to build a major company and you have to do that from the start. So buy the major assets. That's probably a good way to start. Um, and so I think when I look at what we have, these are some of the most important assets being advanced 
by serious companies, whether it's first quantum tech Ataka, whether it's Copper World by Hat Bay, whether it's Nova Union by Tech, whether it's Vizcachitas. So with Dumont, it can, can keep going down the list. And so the reason we did that is because we knew that if we bought the tier ones that are actually moving, the company would have a permanent space in the sector irrespective. And, and so the, obviously you want to have near term cash flow, but it's much easier to backfill near term cash flow when you have a base, which is just irreplaceable. And so, you know, I think, and that's actually been the, some of the best feedback you've gotten from people in the industry is said, well, the assets that you have, you know, you're really just a fixture of the sector. And that's, that's what you want to get yourself to. And there's some great opportunities that we see in front of us. And I think will come as well. I mean, I think the royalty model will become that much more widespread as the sector evolves. Um, you're seeing much more inflation right now. I think equity valuations are definitely struggling because even though you have higher commodity prices, a lot of that is getting eaten up uh, by the cost inflation as well. Um, so I think that the royalty model is really a very sensible way to fund the sector in general. Um, obviously, it has its limitations like anything else, but what we felt was we want to build a company that really will have a seat at the table for a very long time. And we're really happy with that first stage of that, but there's a lot more to do. Yeah, there is. And, I th- and the other thing I think there's a lot more to do is, is you, you guys kind of lay, laying out the portfolio a bit more clearly for us. And I've you know, been, been through the PowerPoint there, you know, because I'd, I'd be interested in understanding not just the overall size, but in terms of, you know, how many of them are sort of materially being advanced and, 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 at, and at what mm-hmm. stage? You know, how many are, you know, 43101 compliant or joint compliant, depending on where, where, where they are in the world? You know, and being able to sort of understand the kind of um, the royal, you know, the royalty linked uh, reserves and, and and resources more easily, so that can help us with sort of calculations. And it's different, and it's difficult also for investors because they, if they're used to looking at silver or gold prices or, or 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 gold equivalents, like obviously for the copper stuff, it's you might be able to put out gold equivalent prices that uh, numbers, I should say, um, nickel a little bit harder because again, not many people invest in that space in how can you make it easier for us to actually value or calculate what it is that you've got and you know where the value sits today versus as it starts coming in you know further down this decade yeah i mean look i mean i think i'm happy to obviously go through uh, asset by asset but i think one thing i'll just say is i think if you if you see the business model is really systematically acquiring at the right price the most important assets in the sector. I think that there's probably a lot more value to that than just any individual royalty. And I think that's sort of when, we, when I go back to the investors that we've spoken with from the 25 cent round, hmm. you know, sort of, I think the question was, well, what do you have? What do you have? What do you have? And they said, well, that's what we have today, but we're, we're constantly adding to the portfolio and it's meant to be a, a systematic diversification of critical assets in a critical sector. That's what we're really trying to do. We buy them at responsible prices. We've gotten what 10% plus IRRs locked in based on, based on public information, you know, going out decades at conservative prices. So all those things, you know, make sense individually. But even more importantly is what makes sense in the aggregate, you know, because again, if you want to find a way to get exposure to these critical assets in this critical sector and this, in this commodity, we really think this is the best way to do it, period. Um, and, and we're constantly adding to the portfolio, obviously. And, you know, but we've been, we've been disciplined about it. You know, I, I think we get asked the question of auctions all the time and how you, how do you sort of stay disciplined and you don't get into these competitive situations? Honestly, I, I don't think there's an easy canned answer to it, but this is the only thing we do. And so whenever there is something that's 
that's valuable to us and that's remotely actionable, we find a way to get it done. And I think that's really where the value of the company is. Um, and I think that's what people can expect us to keep on doing going forward. Um, and so, but yeah, look, of course, happy to go through the assets uh, one, one by one to give more context in terms of what's going on. Right. Okay. Well, or, or just lay, lay them out better for people to actually, because I think the, the, the problem with royalty companies is I like royalties. People like ro- the idea of royalties. Um, but when you could present a lot of data, even brokers can't be bothered going through it. They kind of rely on you to tell them what what uh, is there and investors even more so because they're not used to sort of doing that level of analysis on a, on a, on a project. So either they're going to say, too much to understand, I'm off, or go, yeah, whatever you say is yep. true. And that's not good either, right? So, um, you know, for instance, like on, on your portfolio, trying to understand what the kind of org- organic potential is or mm-hmm. what your future M&A you know, p- p- targets are. Those things are kind of, y- you know, useful Series of questions to kind of kind of run through. Um, of course. So I mean, do, I mean, do you get something you, you, you guys must track? I mean, I don't want to, I don't want to go through organic growth. Uh, you know, one one project at a time. That that, that would be painful. But and then, I think that's actually a great idea. Okay. Uh, you know, when, when we buy these, when, when we buy when we, when we buy these royalties, like so, let, let's go through the math and Takataka, for example, which is our most valuable okay. royalty. I think at this point, it's fair to say we own a 042 percent NSR. On the mind that first quantum is estimating will produce somewhere between 200 and 250,000 tons of copper a year. So copper attributable to Nova is somewhere between 800 to a thousand tons a year. Uh, that's something that's attributable to us in terms of uh, on an annual basis. You take today's prices, that's roughly what eight to 10 million dollars a year. Um, based on, based, based on today's prices. And again, you know, by the time it gets built, which will be, you know, I think they're forecasting that construction would start probably sometime in 24, maybe 25, uh, depending on when the formal decision is made. Um, and then say up and going by the late 2020s. Um, what do you, what kind of copper price do you need to build these things when you look at the permitting delays everywhere? Salta, where, where Takataka sits is as friendly to mining as any jurisdiction in the world. Um, and these mines, when you look at the history of them, they get built at one one size, but then they keep on expanding. Usually, a big copper mine has multiple stages, and so this two hundred to two hundred fifty thousand tons a year. That's stage one. But this is a mine, just in terms of context and size. It's you know, people have talked about it potentially if it can grow to be the size of Escondida. I think that's pretty aggressive. I mean, obviously, just saying, but the fact that someone even brought up those words. Um, it gives you the scale of the deposit. So, I mean, so if you look at the geography, Takataka sits 90 kilometers east of Escondida on the Argentinian side of the border. And, uh, and so Escondida thinks what, 6 billion tons, Takataka is 3 billion tons and still growing. And really it's going to be a district, you know, just the way the first quantum is approaching, you know, they're, they're forecasting initial capex of 3.6 billion. So what we see is an initial mine plan of 200, 250,000 tons a year. Say 800 tons to a thousand tons attributable to Nova. Um, as the mine expands, I think copper prices, just given how hard it is to bring on supply, have some room left. Um, but we, we, we never, we never forecast that. We still run it at 325, even though it sits at like 440, 450 right now. Mm-hmm. Um, so when we look at the base case and we paid in total between the two royalties, we paid $33 million, including which includes $4 million of the, um, at production, uh, for the royalty that, you know, say we'll do eight to $10 million a year. The initial mine plan is 32 years. 
when you look at the average copper mine in the world right now in the top 60, the average expected life is 77 years. And they all, they all started out at a much lower level and obviously just kept wrapping up. So when you look at, when you look at the fundamentals of that investment, um, and we were fortunate enough to, to, to make the first stage investment before First Quantum announced those plans, it's really just one of the best risk adjusted bets you can make. Um, so we're very happy to let that asset mature, um, have them build it, hopefully see them expand it in a very supportive jurisdiction. Um, and that's something that we see is just an exceptional source of value. Okay, and that that point um, that point four two is over the the entire asset. If they expand it, you still get your point four two. Yeah. So basically, the, if you look at the royalty area, it covers basically the entire mine plan. There is a small piece which is left out, uh, just to the geometry of the deposit, but that's it's not terribly material. Okay, and you it's, it's effectively okay. And you, so that, that, that's 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 a good example. Um, and there will be things which work out in the portfolio, and there'll be things that won't or they might take may, may take longer and, and part of that's going to come down to uh, jurisdictional risk i'm sure you get asked this all the time um of course which is um you, you must have some concerns over what you're starting to see out there it, even for us quantum has been affected by th- things like this um where you're getting um pushback from not just first nations or, or indigenous populations um ngos You've got locals concerned about mining processes, um, and you know there's a big cry for you know innovation and change, and uh, for mining to basically up its game. But those are causing delays, and you know, and time's money. So again, when you look at your portfolio, will you be advising your shareholders and the market of, of your concerns about specific assets? Because again, something we see in precious metals is those things kind of get. People forget to mention them. Oh, listen, I mean, you're preaching to the choir. Um, you know, for, for us, jurisdictional risk is the first thing we'll look at. And I think, you know, it's you've got to be, I think, very honest with yourself about what's reasonable when. Um, and so when you when you look at now what we spent on the portfolio, I think in total we spent 65 million US. Um, and so I think market cap right now is just over 200. And, and so I think what you try to do is be responsible with the capital and invest into things that make sense and put where it can advance. Um, and you're getting very good value for your money. I think it's, I, I think it's critical. Um, you definitely see some differentiation between places. Like I, I personally am very bullish on Salta and San Juan in Argentina. I think that, you know, what I see over there, um, I spent a, over a week there in December. They're very supportive of mining, very bullish. You, you probably much easier to permit there right now than most places around the world. Um, so we, and then, you know, obviously some things I've seen in the US, what has happened in Chile, there's definitely pause for concern in, on, on specific situations. Um, but where we feel like we have exposure, for instance, we have our royalties on both Viscachitas and West Wall in Chile. And so when you, that's, those two are the largest, most advanced greenfield projects. And Chile's second largest copper belt, which is 25% of the country's production. And they're 15 kilometers apart, 15, 20 kilometers apart. We see this as the next major camp in Chile at some point. You know, West Wall is owned by Glencore, Glencore Anglo. Viscachitas is, I think at this point, considered probably easily one of the most advanced copper projects that are not yet owned by a major. So timing can get impacted. But when you look at our cost basis on those deals, we bought ourselves a lot of time, which I think you have to do. Um, you know, because you, you, when the opportunity is there to get something good that you think will get developed in time, there's obviously some near-term risks you want to manage um, as much as you can. And then you, that, that has to be done also as a function of price. 
to make sure that you don't overextend on something where you can get really impacted by by a big delay when you've paid when you paid for near term production for sure. So you've since we spoke two years ago, well, sorry, two, two years ago in in October twenty twenty, you've. You're, you're double the share price. Well, just, just under double the share price from when we spoke. So you'd, you'd have taken that at the time. But the truth is, you kind of shot out of the gate. You come off a bit, and it's going to move sideways most of the year. And is that mm-hmm. what do you what do you do about that? Because it's like if we get more of that in 2022, or maybe we need people are thinking, oh, I need to wait till the end of the 2020s to actually you know benefit from the from investing in this thing, or I'm going to park my money for a long time. How do how do you keep the growth component of the investment? going because share price moving sideways retail probably need something to kind of get get them going it's too small kind of for the big you know institutional guys i know you're on the tsx now which is great um but you, you're going to need some bit either some big acquisitions of which we discussed today there aren't that many things uh, projects out there right yeah. you know you know where they are it's a question of can you get a hold of them will you know do people Will people sell the royalty, or you know, will they? Can you create um, royalties, right? So, how, how do you get the the, the excitement uh, going again, or at least a steady, you know, increase? Um, you know, I mean, I, I think the first thing we try to do when we buy things is you obviously want to buy things that you see advancing in some reasonable future. So, when I look across the portfolio, you know, each one of our major projects, from Taka to Vizcachitas to Aranzazu to the other to Dumont, they all have material catalysts and Copper World have material catalysts coming up this year. We're getting that much closer to availability and production, which I think is critical. Um, and I think when as, as investors, again, you what you're seeing also is just lack of supply that's becoming more and more apparent. So I, I, I think that investors as as the portfolio matures, and look, obviously there's more acquisitions on the horizon, but I don't think you want to be just an acquisition machine that always needs to buy more to keep people's attention. I think the key what the key what you're trying to do is really buy durable pieces of the infrastructure that as they advance and become more viable, people realize that it's a really exceptional. But, but explain, explain that because I think most people's experience is the precious metal market because there's more precious metal royalty companies than anything else, right? So that, that that's what they they see. People, the M and A machine seems to work. You know, we've had we've had you know new entry into the place. Um, you know, um, gold royalties, right? They don't have mm-hmm. a lot of revenue. Um, they're trying to buy up uh, companies with revenue to kind of help them on that front, and obviously benefit from the increased multiple on the new the new portfolio, right? So they've got a very clear model: six hundred plus million market cap, mm-hmm. right? They're a promotional machine. It's fantastic, but there's you know there there are other um, companies out there who are perhaps you know struggling on the on the, on the promotional side of things and trying to do things the right way but they're sitting there at sub 100 million market cap because no one's interested in the story they don't they don't necessarily buy what you just said about trying to buy cheap trying to buy well looking at the kind of sustainable cash flows on quality projects so if you were to excite the investor market do you need to do something different or do you think eventually people will understand what it is that you're trying to do? I mean, listen, I think we've got a pretty supportive shareholder base. I mean, I think the only reason we're probably talking about it is because we shot to six bucks so quickly. It's, it's one of those things where, you know, sometimes you, sometimes the markets get excited and it's too much too soon. Um, but look, we came out at what a dollar right now. We're around $3. I think the market's been really supportive of the acquisitions. I think people see the scale of the assets. The assets need to advance further, but they're advancing. I mean, again, these are permanent pieces of the infrastructure. The company has the scale in terms of assets, I think, to get people focused and excited for a long time. What you want to do, I think, from our perspective is 
you know, it's not like you're done. It's not like you're done building. Um, you know, we, we really saw this uh, company as having a chance to become, you know, really having the lowest cost of capital in the entire commodity sector that we are in. Just like on the precious side, you've seen some of the great royalty companies because they're diversified, because they're cash flowing from a number of quality assets, because they don't have the same cost and capital pressures that the producers do, really get become the investor's preferred choice even investing in those commodities. Um, we that's what we see for ourselves as the future. And you build that, you build that one one at a time. You know, so we've been pretty aggressive in the acquisition front. We've done you know eight and what 15 months or whatever it's been. Um, we we see some things we're excited about, but again, it's it's just methodically building the value pieces. First first part was the big ones, then you go to the mid-tier ones and and you balance it out. Do you feel you've got that right? Do you think do you, are you sure that you got that right? Because you know the order of play there seems to have confused people, and they're looking at not a lot of, of revenue early on. So you think people understood that? Oh, absolutely. People absolutely understood that. I mean, the the, the thing is, the thing that's probably why you saw so much excitement earlier is because you had a new company buying Takataka and Nova Union and things that are usually reserved for the big royalty companies. I mean, I think it's when you can get the scarce pieces, you grab them. And you don't ask yourself questions of what do they need revenue. Revenue you can always get like we did later. Um, and but even when you get the revenue. You want to buy that from quality assets. I mean, I think, you know, value in royalties is driven by quality assets that keep on expanding, whether they're big or whether they're smaller. That's really, I think, the main focus of what you're trying to do and generate a return for your investors. Um, so I think that's always the focus. I mean, absolutely. I mean, if you look at capital deployed, we've deployed what, 65? I think market's saying that that's worth just over 200. So I think they're pretty happy with how we spend the money. And, Whenever we find things we actually want to spend money on, you know, we expect we'll get supported again. So, what would you say? What, what would you say to that audience? Because you, you need a bit of retail to kind of get the liquidity moving. Okay, you, the a- average trading numbers are, you know, not that mm-hmm. much, and you don't know how many people are sitting holding on, hoping they'll get back to the three bucks, which is the, the so five bucks that they paid at the beginning of the year. So, w- what do you say to those guys in terms of the the, the that growth profile? You know, and what type of investor they probably need to be. Clearly, it's a get rich, rich slow scheme, but you're getting rich, right? But the, the there's probably some 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 trapped investors in there. How do you swap them out, and how, how you know how do you get the you know get get that price moving again? Or is Honestly, that not really like, I mean, this this is not the kind of stuff I think about. I mean, somebody, the the thing is. Look, your job is to create a great company. This is what you focus on. Somebody bought in at one level, they're, what they want to do with their portfolio, honestly, is just not something that we consider on a daily basis. I mean, you're seeing a value build um, that is pretty fundamental and clear. You're seeing some, you're seeing real diversification within a rare, rare asset class fundamentally, you know, and so, and it's one of those things that just keeps on building consistently year on year with real performance. And I mean, it's one of the best things for me to look at is how we value ourselves is where you deploy the real capital. Have you seen advancement? And, you know, from Takataka to Vizcachitas to Dumont to Aranzazu to Copper World Rosemont, you see real advancement in the hands of real counterparties. And so markets, you know, in the short term, I agree with you, they, they do all kinds of things, but I do think they do realize um kind of real things over a longer period of time. And I think enough people have realized it and I think more people will realize it. Um, and so as a scale, as a scale of the company grows, as the assets advance, as we add some more quality things as well, because we, we, we do have some great opportunities in front of us. I think the cumulative effect will just sort of automatically register. Um, and then, you know, and we have some great, I mean, the, one of the best things that I see in the company is, you know, it's a very closely 
held shareholder base. It's really been there from the very beginning supporting the company. Um, so whether that's institutions like BD, whether that's royalty owners that bend it in, that want to be here for the long term. And so that's, you know, if I think about an audience, it's really the people close to the company that believe in the vision in terms of what we're trying to do. We have some pretty good support, obviously, from the market itself. And um, you just do one at a time and, and stay focused on what actually matters. What's the percentage of institution? Um, I think right now, institutional between BD and the others, we're probably sitting around 15 to 20%, something like that. Okay. Are you looking to increase that? Of course. Yeah. Look, I mean, I think as the company grows, you obviously want to attract new people into the story. Um, they're excited about the opportunity ahead. And it's been, you know, it was interesting, you know, when we announced uh, the Copperwell Rosemont deal, it's a pretty high profile asset. So people knew it. And I think there was kind of a very good amount of interest that came out of institutional corners uh, based on that. And so I think as the assets advance and we, and we do more things, I think that will come organically. Um, I think like one of the things we think about is, you know, capital markets and shareholders and things like that. You want things to organically come into the company at the right time. You know, we've had great support from key shareholders in the beginning as we were building it. Um, now, as we're getting bigger, we look forward to welcoming others, but it's not something that you think about all the time either. I mean, that you just, you shouldn't. Well, maybe it is on the institutional side because, you know, you need a kind of sustained plan of attack for them in terms of you know, regular communication to try and get them to understand. And they're not, the they're not all made, they're not all made equal. You need institutions who understand what you're trying to do. And this is not a one or two year plan. This is a decade long plan. So you need, you need, you need people who want to be on side for that. You know, I think the one of the worst things, the one of the worst things that can happen to your company is if you have a short term oriented shareholder base, I, I, I think you just won't have the ability to execute on the plan you actually need to do. So, um, do, you, so do you guys get taken out? I mean, I'm trying to think because you don't have any competition. I'm not sure who, who would take you out, but if they did, they might be, you know, coming after obviously, you know, future, future revenues. It's not going to be near term revenues. So there's, there's this driver. So is that a possibility? I mean, it's not a possibility we think about too much because we, we've got a business to build, to be honest. Um, so, um, I've never thought about, I mean, you, you don't build a company for somebody to buy it. But you're a public company, um, so if if people are interested, they can obviously always o- always reach out. I mean that's that's part of your job. But um, we see a multi generational business really fueled by the world's most important assets that we're trying to build, and we made some good progress. So that's that's really the focus for us, Matt. 